We're in a series called He Is, and we're going over the seven I am statements of Jesus. Um, and they're all statements where Jesus uses a, an image, a picture, a metaphor to communicate something about himself. Each week has been relevant and important, but there's been a level of cultural distance between us and the image. <clears throat> so for example, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, there's cultural distance. Like, we're not shepherds in this room. And even if you were a shepherd, you're a shepherd in the 21st century, like Gilroy sense, not first century Jewish, Jewish sense. So there's cultural distance between the image and us. When Jesus says he's the bread of life, he's talking to a people who knows what it's like to pray for daily bread. We don't pray for daily bread. We don't know what it's like to go to bed and say, God, can you provide a loaf of bread to eat tomorrow? The image has echoes of the Exodus where God's people are wandering around in the wilderness and literally relying on him to provide bread from heaven on a daily basis. We have cultural distance. Today, however, <clears throat> Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that is the, anti the antithesis, the opposite of death. And death is the great existential threat, the great existential enemy that is constantly looming over all of our heads. No one in this room escapes it. This is kind of crazy because what else is there in shared humanity where there's something that terrifying, that scary, that every single person will have to go through? Unless Christ returns, you will have to look death in the eye. You'll have to deal with it. And even though you're not there yet, we already experience and taste the potency of death when we lose loved ones, those whom we care about. And so death is the enemy that comes for us all. You know, some of us may die from or have to wrestle with cancer or a heart attack or some other illness, but we all have to look death in the eye. And so there's not as much cultural distance because what it meant to die 2,000 years ago looks a lot like what it means to die now. And in this passage, Jesus is going to tackle that very thing. Now, brief word. Uh, today is going to be a little different than usual. Normally, we take roughly 10 to 15 verses and walk through it at a pretty slow pace, kind of breaking it down. Uh, there is a lot of text today, a lot to go over, a lot. Um, and so in one sense, we could break this down into three messages or th three Sundays. But this story is meant to be read as a whole. It's one story. It's complete. And so, we, we don't, you know, you don't want to watch a movie like, hey, we'll watch 20 minutes this week, wait seven days, we'll watch 40 minutes of it next week. You don't want to do that. So we want to take it all in, but just a heads up, we'll be going at a faster pace than usual. We're going to be going through a lot of text, and every so often I'll insert and make some comments so we're all tracking. We've got to go through a lot. So on that, let's get started. <clears throat> we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So you kind of see what's going on here. Um, Jesus is friends with Mary, Martha, Lazarus. He loves them. They're good friends. Lazarus gets sick and they send people to Jesus. You know, Jesus... Your friend, the one whom you love, is sick. Did you get the hint? What they're, you know, no, you're always, Jesus, you're talking about your father's power, 
you kind of got this superpower thing going on. We'd sure love for you to come down because Lazarus is sick and you love him. So come on down and do what you always do, Jesus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did you catch that? doesn't make sense. If you were to hear that a loved one is sick, if you hear that, and in this sense, as soon as you get that news or when you get that news, you, and you expect the text to say, and then Jesus immediately left what he was doing to go be with his friend Lazarus, whom he loved. It's like what you do. Okay, so-and-so sick. Okay, I got to get a plane ticket. I got to do this, but I'm going to be there as soon as I can. Tell them I'm on my way. Jesus hears his friend is sick to the point of death. and He's like, I need to stay here two days longer. It's bizarre. It's mysterious. It's the opposite of what you would expect. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. One important note. In John's gospel, he is going to talk a lot about the Jews who want to kill Jesus. Now, a bad interpretation of this historically has led to anti-Semitism. Because in John's gospel, he talks a lot about the Jews wanting to kill Jesus. So you can get this sense, the Jews are the bad guys of the stories and they want to kill Christ. The problem is that the guy who's writing this, John, is a Jewish guy. And all of the disciples are Jewish. And all the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And guess what? Later, all the Gentiles of the world called Jesus the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God. And so you have to picture this as like a a fight within a family. There are Jews who are following Jesus, Jews who are doubting Jesus, Jews who want to kill Jesus. But the way history is written at this period, they don't don't do specifics like we do. John's just going to say the Jews. And sometimes it's the Jews who believe, sometimes the Jews who doubt, sometimes it's the Jewish establishment who wants to kill Jesus. But it's important to note, because as you're reading it as a modern person, you apply those generalities and make it very specific. And this historically has led to a lot of problems. Did you catch this, though? Uh, The disciples are like, Jesus, you can't go back there because people want to kill you. We don't want to go there. They don't just want to kill you in a normal way. They want to stone you, man. This is going to be brutal. Don't go back. And then Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. What does that even mean? You know, some of you say things like, you know, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have walked with Jesus. I could have asked him all these questions and got all these answers. She's not going to answer your question. You ask Jesus a question, he's going to say like, can cucumbers be pickled? Are jalapenos hot? Are chihuahuas not dogs? It's like, what does that even mean? People ask Jesus questions and he says stuff. 
And half the time, he even lets his disciples know, I'm speaking to them in parables and riddles because I want to confuse them. I don't want, the, I don't want them to know. So this is like, you got to imagine the disciples, we're going to get, they're going to kill you over there. We could get hurt. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Jesus speaks in riddles and parables on purpose. And sometimes he's doing that to keep information hidden. And sometimes he actually wants to communicate truth, but he's doing it in a way that only the people he wants to know the truth will hear the truth. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him now. Excuse me. This is an important principle here, incredibly important. Lazarus has suffered and died. There are people around him who are suffering, emotional torment, They've lost their brother, their friend, their family member. There is immense weeping and crying. Most likely, Lazarus died a painful death. We don't know how he died, but if you get sick in the ancient world, it's not like they take you to the hospital and pump you full of pain meds and let you die, you know, die in peace or your sleep. He was sick with something and it killed him. He suffered. Around him, there's crying, weeping, there's agony. And Jesus says, I am glad I was not there for your sake so that you may believe. In other words, God is willing to allow, or maybe better put, God is more tolerant of human suffering than human unbelief. The greater enemy to your soul is not necessarily pain, but your unbelief. And so God will allow temporary pain in order that you might believe. Now that's hard for many people to understand, but some of you, you know this. Because the only reason why you're in a church today is because God had to break you. You had to go through a trial, a tribulation. You had to endure something, and then what came out on the other side was a faith that could not be fashioned without it. And I don't just mean this in a salvific sense, like how you became a Christian, because this happens at different points in your Christian walk. Maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years, and then something happens to you that you would not want to go through, but that trial, that tribulation, that pain had you realize or gain a greater understanding of God than what you previously had. You now have a fuller understanding, a greater understanding, a greater revelation of who God is because you went through something. And in this case, Jesus is telling his disciples, and you'll see in a bit, the people who are around, I'm glad I wasn't here. I'm glad all of this occurred, not because I like pain, not because I like suffering, but it's more important that you Learn to believe and know exactly who I am. This is great. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. Now this isn't like a faithful Tom. This isn't like, and then Thomas, the most faithful of all the disciples said, if he's going to die, I will die with him. 
He's the doubting guy. He's the skeptical guy. This is like sarcasm, you know? Okay, let's all die since he wants to die. He's the skeptic. And this is some of you in the room, which the fact that Thomas is a disciple should be incredibly encouraging for us, right? Because when Jesus chooses his 12 disciples, he chooses a doubting skeptic. He invites the skepticism along. And Thomas remains skeptical until the very end. He believes enough to sort of follow. Like he goes with Jesus. He believes enough to follow, but not enough to get off the fence and actually go all in. And many of us are in that position today. You may be here because your spouse brings you. If I was speaking in youth group, I'd be saying, you know, I know some, some of you dudes here. You're not Christian. You just like so-and-so. You think she's cute. And so you're doing this Christian thing to try to, you know, hook up. It's not going to work out. Actually, okay. Okay, yeah, I'll say. Um, <laughs> some of you, it, it sort of did. Like you met in youth group and you really weren't a Christian, but through the process you ended up becoming a Christian. Did that ha- has that happened to anybody? I told you it never works. We got one, one person. <laughs> Anyone... Like, you started dating someone who was a Christian and you weren't, and somehow, somewhere along the line, you ended up getting saved. Anybody? Okay, so one, two, great. Thank you. All I needed was one or two. So to show you, statistically, it's a bad idea. The Bible says, don't do it. Bad idea. But sometimes, who was the Christian first, Jamie? Matt was? Dang. Okay. So it works out sometimes. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that. Uh, You know, it can work out, but in general, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Not in general. It's always a bad idea, but God likes to use. God likes to use things. Some of you are here for whatever your motivation may be. You're not a Christian. You're, You're seeking. You're skeptical. Maybe you're trying to impress someone. Maybe you're here because your parents make you. Whatever it may be, God invites the skeptic into the 12. So that's really good news. The warning that I would give you, though, is that God allows you to stay on the fence for only so long. Stay on that fence for so long, but eventually you'll have to either say he's Lord or join the crowds and say crucify him. Eventually you have to get off the fence and decide who do you say he is. But the good news is, is he's patient, incredibly patient, and he invites the skeptic to the table. <clears throat> now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been, <clears throat> been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sent she went and met him, but Mary remained seated, remained seated in the house. Okay, a note about first century burials. Lazarus is, he's going to be wrapped up in linen, like tight, like a mummy, so he can't move. He's going to be put in a small cave and have a big boulder put in front of it. They would leave the dead person there for roughly a year, and then after the year was done, they would go in, and that gave time for the flesh to decay and fall off, and they would collect the bones, then put them in a little bone box, and they'd put that bone box in another location, more often than not with other family members. 
So what's occurring right now is this, the process where Lazarus is bound. And this is important because Jews, for their cleanliness laws, didn't want a body to remain dead in the open. So the day someone died, they were wrapped up and put in the cave. So you can tell where the story is going. It's not, it's not a sport. She's going to bring... She's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. But it's not as if, well, you know, maybe Lazarus, they thought he was dead. But he just took, he was asleep for two days. And then, you know, he, he woke up sometime after. No, the day he dies, they wrap him tightly. You could not get out of this thing. You're stuck. And then this is four days after that. And the idea was that his family would return to that tomb a year later and collect his bones and put in a bone box. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. <clears throat> this is similar to if you, today if someone were to lose a loved one and someone's comforting them or consoling them, they may say something like, um, you will see your brother again. You will see your brother again. And the way you interpret that, if you're a Christian, typically is, okay, I know I will see them again, but I'm sad because for me to see them again, that's either the last day, judgment day, or I'm dying soon type of thing. Similar, something similar is going on, but there's more layers to this. You've got to, got to unpack it to have the Jewish understanding. We've talked about this in the past a little bit, so I won't spend much time. But the Jewish people in Jesus' day had an understanding of both time and space. We typically think, and it's modern Christians, that we live now, and if we die, we become like a disembodied spirit, and we go off into heaven to be with God. That's not the full story, but oftentimes we think like that. In the first century world, Jewish men and women believed in two periods of time, two ages, and two worlds. One world and age was called the Alam Hazeh. That's the present age or the present world. In addition, there was the coming age, the Alam Haba. That is the age to come or the world to come. So follow this. There's two ages. The present age which we live in, and then the age to come, the world to come. In the Alam Hazeh, the present age, it is an age or world of darkness, evil, and corruption. There's death, there's suffering, God's people are not vindicated, Israel is going through trial and tribulation. Their hope was that there would be a day, a precise moment, when God would initiate the Alam Haba, the age to come. And when the age to come, the Alam Haba occurred, there would be a number of things that were said to happen. We can't go over them all, but here's some important ones. Israel would be forgiven of all of their sins. Think of it as a super day of atonement, a super Shabbat, a super Sabbath. Israel, all of their sins, the sum total of them, past, present, future, all of them, are finally forgiven. Secondly, Messiah would come and he would be king and he would rule and reign from Jerusalem. Third, the presence of God would return to his temple. Because the temple right now is rebuilt in the first century. And Jews believe that God's spirit, his presence was in that temple, but not in the same sense as it was in the days of old. So, 
in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, there was a flame, fire that came down and filled the, the temple with God's presence. When Solomon commissions the temple, the flame comes down again and it's visual, you can see it. In the first century world, people know God's in the temple, but he's not there in the same sense as he was in the days of old, in the days of glory, if you will. Fourthly, <clears throat> the resurrection would occur. Now, not all Jews believed this, but the majority of first century Jews did. Um, the common people and also the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees and the common people believed in the resurrection. And they believed it would occur like this. On the first day of the Olam Haba, God would vindicate and raise all of his people up. They have suffered in the present Olam Hazay for so long, but now vindication. Now, when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you're going to see something. You are going to see Jesus bringing aspects and components of the Olam Haba, the age to come, and he's going to rush them forward into the present, into the Olam Hazay. So what is Jesus going around doing? Forgiving sins. So if you believe in me, there's forgiveness of sin. In the Alam Haba, there's not going to be sickness, there's not going to be suffering, there's not going to be death. So what is Jesus going around doing? He's healing people. And some people will say, yeah, Jesus healed people in the Old Testament. Jesus is doing different types of healings. Jesus is healing blind people. The, the receiving of sight to the blind was a sign of the age to come. Who's the only other person in the Old Testament to give sight to the blind? You guys know this, the Old Testament story? Where the prophet heals the blind? No one knows the prophet who healed the blind guy in the Old Testament. It didn't happen. It's not there. It's a sign of the age to come. It's a sign of the age. Jesus is doing different types of miracles. And, and is the, the Jews in the first century, they get this. They know what's going on. <clears throat> Secondly, when Jesus marches into Jerusalem, he enters into the temple and he says things like, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. And as we've unpacked from the previous weeks, those are claims to be God. Those are claims of deity. He's putting himself equal with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. What does he do when he goes to the temple? Cleans it. He cleans house. Jesus is taking things from Olam Haba, the age to come, and bringing them into the present. And it's a way of saying, what you see in the present is a foretaste and a glimpse of what is to come in the future. Taste it now, today, in the present. That is what my kingdom offers in the future. It's a taste of what is to come. Or, as the underappreciated, undervalued South American theologian Nacho Libre said, you got to give him a little taste of the glory. you got a little taste of the glory now. In the present, taste of the glory for the future. <clears throat> resurrection. Everyone thought resurrection happened to all of God's people on the first day of the Olam Haba. What is Jesus' resurrection going to do? He is going to be the first fruits. Jesus is the first one, and he is the signpost pointing to the future. He is the first of all of God's people. But rather than happening in a single instant in future, a part of that comes into the present. 
<clears throat> so the context makes more sense now when, when the interaction occurs. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know and he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And it's almost of John's way of when he's telling his story. It's like there's a story going on and then he turns to you, the reader. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So remember the, the suffering, the pain? Martha, Mary, they're upset. There's that trial, but now what's, what's occurring? Martha is experiencing a greater understanding of who Jesus is. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a prophet. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible right here when Jesus, Jesus weeps. It's interesting to, to, to read that. Jesus weeps, he cries. Now you should be asking yourself sort of, does Jesus not know what he's about to do? Like Jesus knows what he's gonna do, right? Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet he still weeps. There's some other words describing Jesus' emotional state, greatly troubled, deeply moved. And in a sense, those Greek words have, he has like a troubled spirit, he's frustrated, he's angry, but he's also sad. He's all of those emotions at the same time. And probably because there's some people there that are trying to trap him, some people that want to kill him, some people that just want to see a miracle for a miracle's sake, and then some people are genuinely suffering. So it's like overwhelmed with the, the emotions, and it ends with him weeping weeping even though he knows what he's about to do. It's like, why is he, why, why is he crying? Like, you know what you're going to do. I did a, I, I uh, host a podcast with my friend Jay Kim, and we had the opportunity one time a while back to have top five, maybe top, if you're not top five, top ten <clears throat> leading atheist in the country on the podcast. He was a, he was a great, great dude, gentleman. I don't want to say anything negative about him. He was such, such a good dude. I was like, I want you on our team, man. You got to come over. We'll trade you. We got some grumpy Christians. We'll give you those guys. We want, we want you. Um, and one of his critiques of Christianity, I thought, was so incredibly weak. Um, he had said 
that Christians are so inconsistent, they don't even believe what they say they believe. He said, if you go to a Christian funeral, you'll hear them saying things like, we know you're in a better place and we know you'll see, see you again someday. But then they're all crying just as hard as anyone else is crying, whether they're atheist, agnostic, is, is, uh, Muslim, Jewish, doesn't matter. They all cry the, the, at the same level to the same degree. It's like, you're a Christian, you're supposed to have hope. You're supposed to believe they're in a better place and why are you just as sad as everyone else? And I thought it was such a weak critique <clears throat> because... Just because you know something is going to occur in the future doesn't mean that future reality overrides the present emotion. I'll give you an example. I still go to school, so three times a year I have to travel to the East Coast for it. And I only leave for like three or four days. Like four days I'm gone. Every time I say goodbye to my kids, I cry. Every time. I hate it. I hate leaving. You know, your kid starts getting that look, look. Quiver on the li- You're like, well, just cancel the plane tickets, man. I can't. It's super sad. I can't handle it. I hate it. I know I'm going to be back in four days. But separation is painful, right? Separation is painful. And the reason why death is painful, even if you are a Christian, is until you die or God returns, you are separated. And death only speaks with permanency. It's permanent. You can't reverse that. It's not like, hey, maybe I can call you in a month and and that'll help the wait. There's a permanent nature to that separation and it's overwhelming, it's unbearable. And so just because you know one day I will see you, again, doesn't mean it overrides it. So I thought it was such a ridiculous critique. And in this case, Jesus is having all of these emotions. He knows Lazarus suffered. He knows, he knows, The people are crying. He knows the agony. He knows all of that, and he weeps. This is why I believe Christianity is the best explanation for the world. Um, I'd have a hard time believing Christianity outside of the incarnation. Or let me phrase it differently. I wouldn't have a hard time believing in God without the incarnation. The incarnation is the theological word for God himself, Jesus, coming to earth in the flesh as a human being. That's the incarnation. So I could believe intellectually in the existence of God if there was no incarnation, if God did not become one of us. I could believe in God intellectually. I think there's good reason to believe in God. And I would even say all of his laws are good. They're for the flourishing of human beings. We should obey them but I would have a hard time loving and trusting that God. And the reason why is this. Okay, there's reason for you to exist, God, and you give us all these laws and these rules, um, and we have to obey them, and I know they're good, but but man, you you don't know what it's like to, to be one of us. You know what it's like to be down here on earth. Do you know what it's like to cry yourself to sleep again and again and again? Do you know what it's like to be betrayed you don't experience human suffering. You know what it's like to, to, to live in agony, yet you're going to sit up there in your safe place up in heaven and just rain down laws and rules. So yeah, you may exist, but I don't know if I love you. I don't even know if I like you. And I, don't, I don't even know if I want to follow you. What the incarnation does is Jesus, God himself, enters into the human experience, enters into the plight of, 
of the human circumstance. And he adopts the whole thing. So when you look to God, you are looking at a God who in Jesus experiences the full plight of the human condition. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to cry yourself to sleep. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have family members think he's crazy. He knows what it's like to be shamed. He knows what it's like to be shamed to the point that your own people turn on you, strip you naked, and nail you to a cross to mock you. He knows the full weight of the human condition. And so you can't say, God, oh, you don't know what it's like. How do you expect me to follow you, man? You you, you don't know what I've been through. God weeps. He wept. He knows what it's like. God set the rules and he himself came down and played by his own, own rules and followed the law perfectly and gives us the example in which we're to follow. And that's why he's the great high priest because he knows what the human condition is like. So whatever you're going through, whatever place you find yourself in, God himself knows human pain. And in this case, we see it on full display. Not in the cross where there's physical pain, but Jesus is weeping over the emotional pain of his friends whom he loves. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And again, John is looking at you. Do you not know what I told you? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. It's almost like Jesus just said, I could have just prayed in my head, but I prayed out loud so all these unbelievers know what's up. I want them to know that you sent me. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now this is where the story often ends when we tell it. But there's another piece to this story that happens a little bit later, and it is messed up. It's like if you want the good happy ending, that stop right there. Lazarus is back. He's alive, and now he gets to live the rest of his life. Huh. Check this out. This is so messed up. It's messed up. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. We want to see Lazarus. We want to, you know, what was it like in those four days? Tell us about it. Tell us what it was like. Oh, man, you kind of stink, though, still, Lazarus. But we want to know more truth. Verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They're going to kill him again. He got to die twice. That's messed up, man. You just died. Four days later, you come back, and now it's like week one back on the job. We got to kill that guy again, man. We got to kill him again. That is messed up. Which reveals another important principle. When 
God does the miraculous in your life when he changes you. And when you go out to testify of what he's done in your life, some people will believe. Some people will want to kill you for it. Some people want to shut you up. Some people don't want to hear that. They don't want to know what God did in your life. Some will listen. Some will doubt. Some will think you're crazy. And some will want to shut you up. But Lazarus is brought back and there's some who want him dead. I spoke at a conference uh, yesterday and there was a lot of young people there. And my encouragement to them was you, you got to tell people about Jesus. Um, and it's not that you don't know how to tell people about Jesus. It's not that you don't have resources to learn how to share the gospel or there's not enough training in the church. For the most part, um, we just don't share because we're afraid of what people will think. Afraid people think we're weird, we're bigoted or a religious quack or you know, we'll lose friends or family. And it's like, you could lie and be like, that won't happen. God is going to be with you. It's like, no, you've got to tell them the truth. Some will believe and some will hate you because they always hated Jesus. And sometimes we get so stuck on seeking approval of the world that, you know, we'd rather be liked by the world than found faithful to Jesus. Be found faithful before God. So um, Lazarus comes out. People don't. They don't, they don't want that message. Now, I want to go back to this idea of death as we wrap, wrap up. Death in Scripture is called the last enemy, the final enemy. This is interesting. If you were to think of like the last enemy, maybe you might think of sin or Satan or something like that. In the Bible, the final enemy is death. The great existential threat that looms over us all, that is the final enemy to be defeated. What Jesus does with his own resurrection and the resuscitation of Lazarus is he gives you a glimpse of what's to come. But for death to finally be defeated, that's actually at a later date. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The, can here's the key word, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> for, as Adam, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at the coming of those who belong to Christ. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So Christ is going to defeat every last enemy, every last power and principality that exalts itself above God, he will defeat. Verse 25, for after he's done all these things, it says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation actually says it like this. This is bizarre. At the end, finally, God will take 
hell or Hades and death and throw it into the lake of fire. So at the end, what gets chucked into the lake of fire? Death. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. The last enemy to, de- to be defeated is death. And when we're honest with ourselves, that, that's it, man. Death, separation, the permanent nature of it. It's so scary we ignore it. We don't even pretend it's there. You know, Americans are, if you have a condition that's bad for your health that could lead to death, Americans um, are more likely to give medication to their pets who are in a similar circumstance than they are to take it for themselves. Like, if our dog is dying, we'll give them medicine it needs, but when it comes to us taking care of ourselves, we're less likely to do it. So we avoid it. Some of you, you know what I'm talking about? You know there's something wrong, but you avoid, I don't, I don't want to go to the doctor. It's too scary. It's too scary, right? And the scriptures don't pretend that death is not scary. The scriptures say, everyone is going to die. You will have to look death in the eye, and death is the undefeated champion you will lose, you will die. However, the scriptures also say that there was one who was the first fruits of things to come. The only one who looked death in the eye went through it and came out on the other side. And in Jesus, you have the future rushing forward into the present. And it's in him, the first fruits of the resurrection that we trust. The ushers can begin to pass out communion. And now as Christians, we don't talk about olam haba, we talk about the new creation. And what's in the new creation? Forgiveness of sins, Jesus Christ reigning. And also, the scriptures say what? There will be no more suffering, no more war, no more famine, no more death. And God will dwell with his people. There will be no need for temple, for God will live with his people once again. And so today, as Christians who have experienced hurt and death and will one day die, we don't pretend that that's not real. We don't pretend it's not scary. But as Christians, we look death in the eye and look at it a little differently than the rest of humanity. Because we know someone has defeated the so-called undefeated champion. And Christ will return and one day... What the Father did for the Son, he will do for us and raise us up again. The question for you today is, do you believe this? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will not die. And so as we prepare for communion, I'd just like us to prepare our hearts and our minds Someone went before us on our behalf. That's what the bread is. The bread is Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. You get this idea. God himself died in order that you might have life. God weeps. He breaks. He was nailed immovable to the wooden cross in order that we might have life and we not face the second death. So please stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, 
on the night he was handed over, by the night his people mocked him, laughed at him on the night his best friends fell asleep instead of keeping watch. On the night he was beaten, he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, we remember what you did on our behalf. Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you take this, you promise to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so today, in the present, in the present age, we declare that we've received a foretaste of the age to come. We trust in the resurrection that occurred 2,000 years ago as the symbol and signpost pointing to our own vindication and resurrection. Father God, we give you thanks for the work of your son today. He has conquered death. And one day we know that death as the final enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so we put our hope and our trust in you. And independent of present circumstance, Lord, we want to be faithful in our lives, Lord. So encourage us, encourage those who are hurting and broken, who are facing the reality of broken bodies and and death of loved ones or even terminal news themselves, Lord. We, we don't pretend that death isn't real, but we look at it differently. Empower us for ministry. Empower us to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll have our prayer team up front if you want to pray or talk with anything, talk with someone about anything, or maybe it's time for you to say, Lord, I believe I want to follow you. But they'll be up here. You all have a wonderful day. Your presence is the tra-